This is Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Thank you for being with us as we travel around the world and bring you the best of executive leadership in transit systems from America to Canada to the United Kingdom to Europe and today to the land down under Australia. That's right. On today's episode, we bring you an in-depth interview with Neil Scales, Director General of the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland, Australia, which is where the city of Brisbane is located. I recently became acquainted with Neil Scales as I did a drop-in staff meeting for him and talked about the future of public transportation. We enjoyed each other's company so much, I asked him to come and be on the program and help kick off an Australia series. Uh, Neil has a long and distinguished career in transportation, headed back to the United Kingdom, and then he was uh, the Chief Executive and Director General of Mercy Travel, and has been there at the Department of Transport and Main Roads now for almost nine years. As Director General, he has an amazing multi-billion dollar operating and capital budget with assets close to $60 billion, almost 7,000 employees. He's responsible not just for public transportation, but also for all the roads there. His department has a very large responsibility in that part of Australia, and it's exciting today to talk to him, not just about the operations and what he does, but also a little more in-depth about his leadership philosophies. And I think you'll find it a fascinating interview from a gentleman who is at the zenith of his career, leading one of the largest transportation operations around the world. Enjoy today's interview with Neil Scales. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we're excited to bring you an in-depth interview with Neil Scales, Director General, Chief Executive Officer of the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland, Australia. Neil, thank you so much for being with us today on the program. No worries at all, Paul. I'm glad to be here and make a contribution. Thank you. We, uh, we recently were on a, uh, a webinar together where I talked to some of your team about the future of public transportation, and you were so gracious to accept the invitation to appear on our podcast. Um, you've got quite a big operation there. I mean, it's, uh, it's humongous. I was looking at some of the de- details about your operation, an operating budget of almost $6 billion and all kinds of stuff. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do, and then I want to ask you, you know, how you got there and some of your past and your history. Yeah, no worries at all. I think you've got to look at the, you know, the main purpose of the department, and that is to create a single integrated transport network that's accessible to everyone. Now, that sounds really easy, but it's not. It's really difficult. I've been trying in a lot of countries around the world and now here in Australia to, to get this network going, but we're, we're making some good progress. Now, the department's responsible in public transport terms for all bus, rail, ferry, and tram services, but the school bus services in there too. And we, we shouldn't forget walking and cycling, which are really incredible, incredibly valuable components to what we're trying to achieve here. And one of the things with COVID-19, we've seen an explosion, for example, in cycling use. Unfortunately, we're putting a lot of time and effort into uh, making sure all that works. The department covers uh, Queensland, which is 1.75 square kilometers, which is, as you say, a pretty big area. The southeast corner, just an operating area for public transport, is 10,000 square kilometers. 
So we've got over 100 locations across the state. There's over 79 different work groups because we have, as you say, quite a complicated operation. It's more like trying to manage an ecosystem, Paul, rather yeah. than manage the department. So there's five basic components of the department. There's the civil engineering side. Now, our capital program is $23 billion over four years. That's Australian. Uh, we've got TransLink, which operates all the public transport network, which is basically a $3.17 billion organization within the organization. We've got uh, Marine Safety Queensland, which looks after our 21 ports. We have an engineering company called Roadtech, which is a $750 million business within a business. And we've got, obviously, a lot of roads. We've got 33,353 kilometres of roads to look after in the state out of about 180,000 kilometres of roads, so about a sixth of all the roads. Wow. So it's a, it's a complex operation. So you've got uh, from capital projects, like we've just finished the Toowoomba Second Range Crossing, which is 41 kilometres of new road, which is a $1.6 billion investment. So that took three years to build but you know you've also as you know from your career got the immediacy of public transport with pre-covid we had probably about 200 million journeys a year on the network so that's all pre-covid of course covid is is providing its own challenges but also its own opportunities just as an example i've just made the point about cycling use has exploded but I've been trying for a long time on the bus network here in, in Queensland to get cashless fares, and yeah. uh, we, we, we did that overnight. That's all we did is say, uh, wow. well, drivers can't, can't handle cash. So fortunately, uh, about 90-odd percent of our transactions in the southeast corner on our go-kart system anyway. Uh, so we've got a network that looks after roads, bridges, culverts, all transport in terms of public transport. Uh, marine safety in terms of harbour masters so it's a very challenging job but I really enjoy it and I can't wait to get to work every day it's a fabulous opportunity to actually make a difference that's wonderful for those of us in uh, the United States who are geographically challenged I know I've been over to Australia but most people haven't kind of fit in you know people have heard of Sydney and Melbourne and they know where that's at kind of fit in where you guys are at in Brisbane and, and Queensland so they kind of get a picture geographically well Queensland is the second largest state, but it's the most geographically dispersed. So you've got that massive landmass, say, you know, 1.7 million square kilometres. But there's only 5.1 million of us in it. Now, if you take all of Australia, Australia itself has probably got 25 million people, but 85% of that number is within 50 kilometres of the coast. So in the centre, there's a lot, there's a lot of empty space. So... It does make a bit of a challenge for um, for the transport network. But if you take, I don't know, Alaska is probably 660 square kilometers. So we're at, um, you know, 1.7. Texas is 268,000 kilometers. You know, we're at 1.7. California is 163,000 kilometers. Uh, square kilometers there is you know so that puts it into context so yeah you could fit in really alaska texas and california into queensland and still have space wow. and we're in the uh the top right hand corner of um the eight states and territories that make up australia yeah 
For so those it's either the, the smallest continent or the biggest island in the world. <laughs> That's right. For those of you who play Risk, the game, you know what Australia looks like. He's the top right-hand corner of Australia. Um, that's amazing, Neil, the, the size and the scope of what you've got there. So uh, you're a Brit, right? So how'd you, how'd you end up there in the diaspora of, uh, of Brits that went to uh, out in the yeah. Commonwealth there? Well, there's a lot of us here, but um, I took a call from a recruitment consultant in November 2011 that said, oh, there's an organization called TransLink. They were looking for a new chief executive officer because the existing one was was going back to, to the UK. So um, I applied, you know, very successfully, or very luckily, got the job. And um, in March 2012, I started in this gig as uh, CEO of TransLink. Then the political dimension changed and the Labour Party changed to the Liberal National Party. And they decided that... that uh, absorbed TransLink, which was a separate statutory body at that point, into okay. uh, Transport and Main Roads. So at that point, I became a, a part of uh, Transport and Main Roads as a department. Now, the operating area that TransLink had when I came here was uh, just the southeast corner. That's 10,000 square kilometers with uh, 18 bus operators, one train operator, and one ferry operator. So then I became responsible for transport across the whole state. Then we had some changes in October 2012 when the, the then Director General uh, stepped down and I became the Acting Director General. He left in Christmas of 2012 and I took over permanently as the Director General of the whole thing in um, March 2013. So and I've never looked, never looked back. So it's been a, a fantastic journey for me as, as a transport professional and engineer and Hopefully, I've made a contribution while I've been here. We relocated the family in July of 2012, so wife, son, and daughter came across, and sort of seven and a half years later, we're all Australians, and we're not going back. We really like this country, and well, it's certainly what's got off for the kids, Paul. It's very, it is a lucky country. It's got lots of opportunities. There are lots of things here. And you've got some other responsibilities that you do, right? I mean, right? I mean, you've got, in 2014, you became commissioner for the National Transport Commission. Yeah. And uh, you've done a lot of other stuff. Uh, government champion for an indigenous Fort community Binder. and yeah. all that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about all that. Right. The National Transport Commission, there are six commissioners. Two are appointed by an organization called the Transport and Infrastructure Senior Officials Committee. So that's all the CEOs of either transportation or infrastructure in Australia and New Zealand, actually, in one place at one time. So that's a committee. The National Transport Commission is an organisation that actually uh, forms the, the laws that, that then govern, say, I don't know, the use of um, electric vehicles or the use of autonomous vehicles in Australia. Okay. So I was lucky enough to become a commissioner so I can actually help set the agenda for our political team as we move forward for the economy of Australia and Queensland as well. But this is an Australia-based thing. Yeah. There's a standards organisation called Ostroads, and we do lots of really useful guides on pavement design, all that sort of thing. And those guides are free, and we publish those. So I'm the chairman of Ostroads. There's a, a company called ARB, the Australasian uh, Roads and Research Board, which was set up by the the old transport and main roads departments of all of Australia. It's got a library with 60 
odd years worth of technical information in. So I'm the vice chair of that. So that's the research bit. Okay. Um, each director general in, in the Queensland government has got a, a champion role for an Aboriginal community. I was lucky enough to get Warabinda, which is uh, to the to the to the west of uh, Rockhampton, so it's, it's inland, um, it's sort of in the central part of uh, uh, Queensland. So I've been working with with the, the local community there just to do what I can to improve things. To keep myself grounded, there's the PCYC here, which is the Police Youth Community Organisation. So we've got a number of branches spread all the way through Queensland, and we work with kids, with the police. I suppose to, to summarise it is keep them in sport, keep them out yeah. of court. And, but we also do a lot with the communities there, and there's, there's gyms in, in our branches. So that keeps me grounded, Paul. But, yeah, I've got a, I've got a national role as well as, well as a local role, but... What I'm trying to do is just point everything towards, you know, the single integrated transport network that's accessible yeah. for everyone. And, you know, you, you're a transport professional. It sounds really easy, but it's not. And, um, no. <laughs> you know, and, and you also know it takes a lot of stamina. So you've got to keep on going. So from the immediacy of public transport, whether the services that we're providing operate effectively, efficiently every day, to you know, looking after our harbours and our coastline, and bear in mind that we've got you know tremendous natural assets here, like the Great Barrier Reef. So we've got a system called VTS, which is a vessel tracking system. So we can track all the the vessels that's going up the coast and make sure they don't actually impinge on the reef. So that's a, a really important safety role as well. And before we had a national rail regulator, I, w- I was actually the rail regulator here for. Um, for Queensland, but we now we've got a national one. So, thankfully, I've handed that baton across to the national regulator. So, it is an ecosystem, and I'm very proud to be leading a department of nine thousand two hundred and forty people across the state. You get a lot of pleasure out of it, as you know, on operating something that big. There are challenges, and there are days when you know you get really frustrated, like any other job. But no, it's um, it's the best job I've ever had. That's awesome. Now. I was just talking with Andy Byford about you earlier this week, Andy, and you are buddies, and he said to say hi. Tell me about your time prior to coming to Australia when you were back in the UK and with a lot of these guys. Howard Collins started his, his career back there yeah. as well, and other folks did. I think you guys were all buddies back in the day in London, right? Yeah, that's right. Howard and I were on the British Transport Police Authority. So the police authority is different from any of the other 42, I think, local police organizations because the British Transport Police is a very long and thin operating area so it covers all railways and the two and a half thousand stations actually in in the UK on the mainland UK anyway so we, we were part of that organization for a while when he was in London Underground and I was in uh, Mersey Travel which is the transport operations organization for uh, for Liverpool and the surrounding region but I started off my career as the last Sunderland Corporation Transport Apprentice. Sunderland is my hometown in the northeast of England. And I'm from a family of miners. My dad was a miner. My grandfather was a miner. My great-grandfather was a miner. And my mother did not want me to go down the pit. So she pointed me in the direction of being an apprentice. And I was lucky enough to get a job um, as an apprentice electrician with Sunderland Corporation Transport. Now, at that time... 
the transportation department of the corporation, which was like a, a large uh, town. It's a city now, but large town, about 250,000 people on the northeast coast of England with the biggest, used to be the biggest shipbuilding port in the world. It also had a glassworks at Pyrex and it had um, obviously a mine. So my mom didn't want me to go down the pit and I'm the eldest of four. So she's pointed me in the direction of an apprentice. And I'd worked out pretty quickly that although I really wanted to go to university um, because of the minor strikes, which were very uh, high profile at the time. Yeah. Uh, my, dad, my dad couldn't actually provide for us. So I, one of the reasons for, for going to an apprenticeship, I actually got paid. And I'd worked out that while I, while I was getting paid as, a, as an apprentice and I'd end up with a trade at the end, I could do ordinary national certificate and then higher national certificate, and then I could go to university after that. So I worked out that I could get a trade, get qualified. It was all dear release at that point. Also helped support the family. So did that, and then I was in a, a, a tradesman for a year. Then I came off the shop floor as an assistant engineer. The guy that ran Sunderland as, a, as an engineer probably worked out that Maybe I had some small potential that he recognised, and so I did. <laughs> so I did ordinary national certificate, higher national certificate. Then I did a degree. I did a bachelor of science in engineering, then a master of science in control engineering and computer systems. Then I thought, well, I need some management qualifications, so I did a diploma in management studies, and I got that with a distinction. And I reckon that wasn't enough. So then I did a, a master's of business administration, and then I decided. I want to put something back, so I taught. So I taught on the MBA course. On the career side, I'd gone from an assistant engineer to the development engineer to the chief engineer. Now I'd worked out that um, at that point, Sunderland had become part of something called Tyne and Weir Passenger Transport Executive, which was the Metropolitan Transit Authority. And then that got um, that was all very interesting because we we built. Tiny Way Metro, we integrated buses, uh, the metro system and the ferries, uh, and also the heavy rail system in, in the county of Tyne and Weir in the northeast of England. Uh, but then I got a job as the uh, director of engineering at Greater Manchester Buses, which looked really exciting because it was 2,000 buses, uh, you know, biggest operating area outside of London, who at, at that time had, I think, 6,000 vehicles operating. And then I went into, uh, from Greater Manchester Buses, I went into manufacturing. So I went into a company called Northern Counties Motor and Engineering Company, making double-deck, single-deck buses and airport crash tenders. Then um, the manufacturing of buses in the UK went flat. So then I went into consulting. So I ended up consulting for European Commission and the World Bank and travel around the world. And then eventually, then kids came along, so I decided I needed a, I needed a, a sort of anchor rather than travelling all the way around the world because this, this is my thirty third country I've worked in. I think so. Then um, it's very very quickly that then I was asked to go to Mersey Travel to be director of customer services, and then a year after I got there, I became the director general. So I became the chief executive and director general was the title. You know, two titles, but sadly one salary in Merseyside, <laughs> which was fabulous because we had two Mersey tunnels under the river, Mersey ferries, uh, Mersey Rail Electrics, which was um, 
66 stations, 66 miles of track. And we had the bus company. So that, that was a really fascinating time for me. And I was at Mersey Travel when I, I got invited to um, put a put my hat in the ring for the TransLink job here. And, and, and now here I am. But along the way, I've done all sorts of other things as well. Like we had a massive push in Merseyside when I was there on the tourist economy. So we had uh, Spaceport in one of the ferry terminals, which is the International Space and Astronomy Center. We built new terminals at, uh, at Pierhead, for example, and we bought the Beatles story and put part of the Beatles story in Pierhead. We refurbished all three ferries and renamed them. And probably not a well-known fact, but I actually bought a German U-boat for a Euro, U534, and turned it into a, a tourist attraction in one of the ferry terminals, and that, that's all on the web. So, I'd love to see that. I, I'm reading that book on Lusitania right now, the last, oh yeah. the last uh, yeah, where they got sunk by a U-boat. It is, yeah. yeah, it's interesting with U-boats. There's 1,184 built. Uh, the Kriegsmarine had 40,000 sailors in it, 30,246, I think, died. So that's 70% losses. But wow. yeah, it's a different, different. But that was probably one of the more complicated things I've ever done. So along the way, I've sort of done sort of engineering, I've done manufacturing, done consulting, done transport operations in public transport sense. I've built bus stations, I've built rail stations, um, managed to pick up uh, chartered electrical engineer, chartered mechanical engineer, chartered civil engineer along the way. So now what I'm trying to do here is integrate the network, but also trying to put things back. And that's one of the reasons I'm very happy to do this podcast. That's great. So tell us about some of your favorite projects you're working on now and putting all that experience you've gained over that career to helping the folks there in Queensland. I think on the, the capital side, we're building new roads, refurbishing roads. Uh, we're putting lots of car parking in at train stations. Uh, we've just taken delivery of 75 new six-car trains, which we're modifying because... It's a long story, but we're, we're putting two accessible toilets in, and the first of the 75 is now on the network, so that looks pretty good. So I'm very pleased to be part of the integration of everything. On the uh, road side, we're, we're building you know, lots of new roads. For example, but just to get the thing in context, the 33,000-odd kilometers of road that we've got, that's enough to go all the way around the coastline of Australia and a third again. Oh. So it's a really long distributed network. I don't think I've got a single project that I could put my finger on and say, yeah, I'm really proud of that. I think there's a road that is between Lakeland on the Cape, on Cape York, from Lakeland to Weaver. It's over 500 kilometres long. And because the Cape has a wet season, you can only work on, on the road in the, in the dry season, which is now. And it's unsealed and you know, the people up there rely on the road to actually get, you know, food and, and produce and things through and tourism. So I think one of the things I am proud of, I've sealed 200 kilometres of that road while I've been here. And we, we've got the local indigenous communities involved all the way along. And we're training, you know, to use a parable, we're teaching them how to fish rather than giving them a fish, but giving them a, a hand up and not a hand out. And just trying to build capacity and economic uh, benefits for for remote and indigenous communities. So that's probably one of the things that I'm uh, proud of. But 
If you look at the last thing I did in, in Merseyside, you know, it was three refurbished ferry terminals. You know, we built six new rail stations, four new bus stations. The central station at um, Liverpool Lime Street was completely refurbished. So my legacy there, I guess, is all infrastructure and, and physical assets. My legacy will be the people. Because what yeah. we're doing with a team here in the Transport and Main Roads family is building an agile, resilient team that actually, you know, is, is making a huge difference to the people of Queensland. But, you know, we're making people grow as well, Paul. So I think that the, my legacy here, I guess, will be the people where my legacy in other places I've worked would have been physical infrastructure. Um, we've just announced yesterday, or the Premier just announced yesterday with my minister and the Mayor of uh, Gold Coast that we're doing the planning for the for Line 4 of the tram. And we're about in the procurement process now for Line 3 of the tram. Now, having been involved with trams in Manchester, in Edinburgh, but also in Europe, and now here in... Um, in Queensland, you'll know from your background that line one is always the most difficult to get in. And once line one's in and people can see the benefits, then, you know, there's always a clamour for lines two, three and four and onwards. So I was involved heavily in, for example, in Manchester and England on line one of Metrolink, the tram system, then out of line eight. At the same time, Portland, Oregon, which you'll know very well, I'm, I'm assuming, their line one went in in 1988, and that was a, a nightmare to get in. I think they're up to line eight now. You look at any system in the world, um, apart from Melbourne here in, in Australia, which has probably the biggest tram network, I think, anywhere in the world. They but do, yeah. always getting line, line one is the problem. So I always, you're talking about experience. I'm trying to bring the experiences I've had to bear, not just in the UK, but in Europe and elsewhere, just to make sure that the mistakes are made you know, I made a lot of them, uh, but the mistakes I made are not repeated across Ian Quinns. And that's where myself, Andy Byford, Howard Collins, and others that are, that are here and elsewhere, because we've got a lot of experience about, you know, transport networks in particular. We, we can bring a lot, make a lot of contributions to what we're trying to do. And the problems are usually the same, no matter where you are, they... There might be odd things in, in different climates that, that really affect you, but it's all about getting, you know, a repeatable service for the customer. And my definition of customer satisfaction is meeting customer requirements first time, every time. And that sounds really easy, but it's not. It's really hard because each customer segment has got a different uh, approach. And the other thing is being in a democracy, everyone has a voice. No voices are entitled to be heard. So a single-issue pressure group has got the same voice, as far as I'm concerned, as the Chamber of Commerce or, or anyone else. And we've got to make sure that you know we balance everything out. And you know from your operating time in, you know, in the States, balancing all that can be a really difficult job because there's never enough dollars in the bucket to do what you want. And with the advent of social media, you know, uh, the if you... If you if you don't provide what the public want or the customer wants, you know the um, the response can be pretty brutal pretty quickly, yeah, that's uh, right. pretty unforgiving. And I'll just give you an example. We built an extension to the Bruce Highway called the Gateway Upgrade North, and we opened it only a certain day. It was a billion dollars worth of new road, new capacity. Uh, we put in bike paths beside it and all the rest of it. And the day we opened it, unbeknown to the people on it, there was a couple of crashes on the Bruce highway upstream 
So what happened was the uh, the traffic backed all the way down the gateway of Great North and we got panned on social media saying, you know, you've built this road and it's worse and blah, blah, blah. The next day, no crashes on the Bruce and the thing operated perfectly. You know, great traffic flow, everything worked really well. Did we get any thanks? No, we didn't. All people remember was that, you know, on the day of opening, it didn't didn't work as well as it could have. So, But that was yeah. not the fault of the road itself. So... What we need to think about, I think, as an industry is how we harness social media, how we harness new technology, how we harness messaging in, in, in vehicles, how we give the intending customers you know, as much information as we possibly can so they can make good transportation choices. And that leads me on to Mass, which is Mobility as a Service, which is in your book, The Future of Public Transportation, which I've got a copy of because I always like to to know what I'm dealing with, Paul. So I did my research. <laughs> so, but mobility as a service is one of the most exciting things I've seen coming out of uh, you know the tech, the the technology advantages that this this part of the world and others will actually take advantage of. Because, um, and I think it's it's people like you and I need to keep on pushing the boundaries forward with our colleagues in academia, with manufacturers, with operators all the stakeholder groups to make sure we push the boundaries forward and provide the best possible service that we can. Absolutely. We've got, and I think the next generation, I'm sure you would agree, Neil, um, needs to be told about the public transportation. I'm working just about done a children's picture book on public transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and beyond. And the idea is to make, is to allow children to be fascinated with public transportation and maybe even pick it up as a career. I think, uh, you know, the brain drain from Generation X, which is my generation, we're in our 50s now and people are retiring after 30 years and the new jobs that are in our industry are very tech savvy and very different, aren't they, than the jobs when you and I were growing up in the public transport industry. I, I think you're absolutely right, but we've got to make sure we harness it properly. I'll give you an example. If, if you're using Google Maps on our network, um, the information is probably 15 minutes behind real time which means that if you're in a, a traffic jam caused by an accident say on the M1, which is a, an annual average daily traffic of about 145,000 vehicles in three lanes and four lanes going north and south between you and the Gold Coast, uh, you're actually in the jam when you get the alert to say there's a problem. Now, we, we've got to do better than that. And for the Commonwealth Games, which is a, a massive success here by any, any measure, uh, I put Bluetooth counters all the way up and down the motorway. So we had our own counts in real time, so long as you know somebody had a, a mobile in the car. Yeah. Or sometimes there'd be more than one mobile in the car, so we could count cars in real time and work out where the um, the problems were and put the alerts out before it actually became a huge problem. So we can do it. I think it's a matter of just harnessing um, the technology, but also managing expectations because the other thing with social media, people expect instant gratification. It's really interesting. So we just need to turn that to our, our, um, our advantage moving forward. And I think there's some great examples, not just in Australia, but in Europe, in the States and elsewhere, about you know, how mobility as a service is starting to actually come to fruition. I don't think anybody's doing it properly yet, and, but, but it's coming. And also connecting autonomous vehicles, so-called driverless cars, I think that's one of the most interesting things I've seen because if we if we can use that t technology and save one life, it's worth it. Absolutely. Um, 
yeah, I think there are there are cities that are starting it where transit agencies are seeing their role change from just being a provider of transportation to an aggregator of all the transportation and mobility options in a city. I wanted to kind of fold back as we wrap up and just have you talk about, you, you'd mentioned that your legacy here is going to be the people. And, yeah. you know, having been in management most of my career for 33 years, people are obviously the greatest opportunity, and, and uh, but also a big challenge. So tell me maybe some tips of what you've learned to building a great team, to harnessing the innovative power that comes from your team. And because you can, I mean, obviously you've got 10,000 employees there. You can't do all this work yourself. You've got to, you know, enliven and engage your top leadership team as well as the frontline troops in order to kind of move forward to create this single consolidated network that you're working on. So give us some of how you're doing that and some, some inspiration as we close out about ideas you've got about how to make that work and maybe a story or two. Firstly, depends on your leadership style. I, I, I'm, I reckon I'm a, an authentic leader. What you see is what you get. But there's a, there's a spectrum on which I operate, which is basically contingent management. What does that mean? It's the leader, the led, the task, and the context. And it's on a continu- continuum between tells and sells. So, you know, when things get really hard, like in COVID-19 world, or if it's a crisis, or if it's a you know, set of bushfires, which are really difficult here, or a monsoon, or a tropical cyclone, you can vary your management or your leadership style towards the telling side. But most of the, most of the, the time in business as usual, or in our case now it's business as unusual, it, yeah. it's more collaborative. So I worked out that because of COVID-19, just an example, um, I couldn't do what I normally do because in, in the event of a tropical cyclone or a disaster, I like boots on the ground. So I get out and talk to the staff and make sure everybody's up to speed on what we're doing, what the task is and where we're going by personal contact. I couldn't do that. So I worked out that the communication side in early March was the right way to go. So I've done 27 videos now. I've upped the number of DG messages. I just did a, a DG roadshow, which had like, I don't know, 1,000 people down the line and about 100 people in the room. I used to do those on a regular basis. So I think... The big thing is, firstly, you've got to have a, a leadership style that actually engages with your people. And bear in mind, I've got 79 different work groups and different sections of, of this organization. So I've got an authentic leadership style. I communicate, I think, really well. Now, communication system here is pretty sophisticated. Another example, I suppose, is that I opened a direct line of communication between all the staff and me. So if they've got a question... On COVID-19, they can just ask me directly or an answer within two days, which is directly back from me. So I think communications is it. On, on, the, on the leadership front, we have to get more women into, into leadership. When I first got this gig, uh, the executive leadership team had one woman and six blokes. Now we've got four women and three blokes. And, you know, they are really, really great contributors to the overall strategic direction. And you get a different, actually, dimension. The other thing you've got to have, and you know this as a, as a leader yourself, you've got to have repeatability. I'm always dressed in a, in a white short sleeve button-down Marks & Spencer shirt and Marks & Spencer suit. I always have an Aboriginal tie on, and it's that repeatability that people just say, well, that's DG, and they, they actually get a bit of comfort for that, I believe, because they've got the repeatability. So that's my sort of that's trademark. That's my uniform. So I think there's that as well. So you've got to be consistent, you've got to be honest, you've got to be authentic, 
And then what you've got to do is make sure you've got the right fit of people in the right places. So it's taken me a while to get the executive leadership team where it is. We have changed people out. And you've got to have the ability to do that as well. And it's not not a case of being ruthless, Paul. It's a case of, you know, making sure that everybody's pointing in the right direction, everybody's made a contribution. The senior leadership team below that, and there's 43 people within that, again, we've changed people in that. And because this place is so diverse, if we've got uh, the Deputy Director General in TransLink that's going on holiday for a while, I won't necessarily replace him with a TransLinkian. I'll put somebody in from somewhere else. If we've got somebody in the planning area that's gone on holiday, I won't necessarily replace them with another planner. So we are giving our middle management and our higher management an opportunity to see different bits of the business. We're doing, I do a series of autumn lectures as well. Um, I've done one for about eight, eight months, but these lectures are on authentic leadership. They're on you know, how to make a difference, time management, and then there's a topic that the, the leadership team or the wider leadership team will actually pick as an ex-MBA, you know, Master of Business Administration, a lecturer. I can actually use models from the MBA to actually bring things to life. But the overall thing is, is continuous learning. I really am a fan of promoting continuous learning because if you take what I'm trying to build here, which is a machine to deliver a single integrated transport network accessible to everyone, You've got to have the people to do it. And there's no real definition of what an agile workforce is, but my definition is you've got to be committed to continuous learning. So you've got to learn all the time because if you're not doing that, it's like standing in a stream with everything rushing past you. You've got to be paddling furiously upstream, and to do that, you need to do continuous learning. And you've got to be prepared to actually you know, give it a go. So the culture I've got here is that all my people, hopefully, have got a an opportunity to actually blossom, but but actually have a go at things and be courageous. And, you know, as long as nobody gets killed, I don't get put in jail. And they don't make the same mistake, you know, repeat the same mistake, I'll, I'll back my people up to, to have a go. And I think it's worked. And I think the results are that, and you can you can see the results because there's less sickness and absentee, there's less turnover. And you can feel that the morale and we measure the morale on a, on a survey once a year. The morale's quite high here. And we are tackling really tricky issues through the department, like domestic violence. And we've got, we are white ribbon accredited. We've just been accredited again. I was a government champion for that for a while. It just cannot be right that, you know, two Australian women a week are killed on average by perpetrators, for example. So we've got a very strong ethical base. We've got a very strong leadership base. And our communications, because this place is so big, uh, our communications network's pretty good. So I'll give you an example is while I've been stuck in this place on COVID-19, what I'll do is I'll go out of the building and I'll go down to the pier head, uh, walk through the, the city centre and back again, that's three kilometres, or I'll go down to the university grounds, go through the university, on the mangrove walk on the river, then back in this place, that's two kilometres. But while I'm doing that, and I'm getting over 100,000 steps a week, but while I'm doing that, I'll make phone calls and just check up on the people. So rather than just walking around, I'm actually working with a purpose. That's just one little vignette, I suppose, of where I'm trying to keep connected. And basically what's happened is, and we've got this through feedback on the Director General videos, is people think that they're more connected and 
I think there's an increased level of trust. And part of that goes back to the authentic leadership bit and, you know, just how not just me, but the executive leadership team, the senior leadership team actually conducting the business. And if you go down to AOA level, that's admin officer A level, which is the first rung of the management ladder. When I got here, I think we had 14% women. Now we've got 32% women. So that's one good thing. But there are 830 odd people in that, um, in that group. That's the great leadership team. And we are encouraging them, you know, to step up as leaders, but also grow as well. So I can't do it all. Um, nobody can do it all. But what we can do is set the framework up. And as leaders, um, you know, encourage our people to be the best they possibly can. That's awesome. I think you and I share a lot of the same values of continuous learning, etc. cetera. Uh, my wife and I have six children and, and five grandchildren, and we're trying to instill the same thing into them as well as, you know, at, at our workplaces, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job putting together a top-notch team to create this single integrated network there in Queensland. And, and Neil Scales, Director General of the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads, thank you so much for sharing with us some of uh, not only, you know, kind of the big picture of what you're doing, but uh, actually some advice for folks on how, how they lead organizations and build teams. Yeah, very happy to do this again, if you want, Paul. And I think where it would really help, and you know, I'm very happy to contribute any way you want, but where it would really help if you and I do another one of these, but get people to ask us questions, and then you know, we can really bring the kids on with um, not necessarily pearls of wisdom, but just you know, you and I make thousands of decisions and have made you know, hundreds of thousands of decisions, probably millions of decisions in our careers, and we don't get them all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think if we can share the benefit of where we've got it wrong, but more importantly, how we got out of it. I think that's the, the key thing. That's wonderful. I'd be happy to do that and with, you know, doing with your leadership teams or whatever, it'd be awesome. I remember I used to tell my kids that when I came home from work in Baltimore, I'd say, you know, I think I made a hundred decisions at least today. And, and they weren't easy decisions because the easy decisions are all made by other people in the organization. It's the tougher ones that come to the top and there's no template for how you can make those decisions. Amazing, huh? No, there's, there's, no, there's no playbook on this. And I think what you've got to do is you look back on your career and how you've actually you know, been trained. And I was trained by some amazing people. And what I've tried to do is integrate that, move on. And now what we're doing is, is trying to sort of give it back. And I know Andy Byford's doing the same, Howard Collins is doing the same, you're doing the same through this, this podcast medium. And it comes back to what I said before. We, we're using podcasts now to actually get people interested in transport and public transport in particular. But 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. You look at Casino Royale with James Bond in it, which is 12 years old. Yeah. He uses a Nokia. You know, he hasn't even got a smartphone. So smartphones are just over a decade old. That's so, and, and people all say, oh, I don't like change. It's, it's actually rubbish because <laughs> if you've got kids or grandkids, you've got to change all the time. That's right. Yep. Thanks again, and we will talk, I am sure, very soon. No problem at all. Enjoy that. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.